Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Adventures of Mr. Chris. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Cruz. In this podcast series, we delve into the past, present, and future dynamics of the end of the world and ask why this concept continues to have such cultural resonance. From apocalyptic religious narratives in the Book of Revelation to the zombie apocalypse and doomsday preppers, the end of the world remains an important cultural idea. From our current global coronavirus pandemic to catastrophic wildfires, hurricanes, and widespread social unrest, it's little wonder that people are worried about the end of the world. In this week's show, we look at the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, or SETI, and our fascination with alien phenomena, from UFOs to government conspiracies at sites like Roswell and Area 51. We'll explore the Fermi Paradox, and efforts by scientists like Frank Drake to reach out and make contact, including the famous 1974 Arecibo message, and debates about whether we should be trying to make contact at all. We'll also look at some reasons for our lack of proof about alien existence, from a cosmic great filter to catastrophic climate change on distant alien planets. As always, I want to welcome those students listening from my end-of-the-world class at CSU Chico. Thanks for tuning in. So with no further ado, let's jump right into the end of the world. The classified investigative committee called the Majestic 12 was organized by President Truman. And a government cover-up was initiated with a calculated disinformation campaign. Welcome to our week 15 lecture for the end of the world, where we're looking at hungry aliens and the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Now, just a reminder, we've been going through Brian Walsh's book, End Times, A Brief Guide to the End of the World, looking at a number of different end of the world scenarios. And this week, we turn to our final end of the world scenario, which is aliens and extraterrestrial life. Do they exist? Where are they from? And perhaps most importantly, could they bring about the end of the world? So this story of alien encounters is one that's played out in human cultural imaginations for decades. Some would even argue millennia. And we can think about examples such as H.G. Wells' famous 1898 sci-fi novel, The War of the Worlds, which was, I would argue, brilliantly adapted by Orson Welles into the sensational 1938 CBS radio drama, which sparked a momentary panic in America when it was broadcast. And we can also look at the way that sort of the image of the alien um, permeates our media, from cult classics like the Japanese movie The Mysterians to Doctor Who to our friendly E.T. and Killer Predator. And there's the X-Files, Men in Black, and even Mars Attacks. Shout out to Spooky Mulder. So, as Walsh suggests, for many people around the world, these stories of aliens tell a familiar tale, where advanced extraterrestrials come to conquer Earth, secretly or in force, and humans band together to repel them. Yet, despite this cultural obsession with aliens, our actual relationship with aliens remains elusive. And this is often referred to as the Fermi Paradox, and this is a saying that was attributed to scientist Enrico Fermi. If you remember, we discussed him a few weeks back in relation to the Trinity nuclear bomb test in the United States. 
And although there are varying accounts of exactly what Fermi said in 1950 about aliens, essentially what it boils down to is Fermi was asking his colleagues, if aliens do exist, where are they and why don't we have proof? And so this search for extraterrestrial life is really driven by this paradox. If there's alien life, in particular uh, intelligent alien life somewhere in the universe, can we prove it and how? But I would argue a second equally pressing question would follow immediately after that. And this is one that's more relevant for our end of the world discussions, which is assuming that aliens do exist, are they going to kill us? Certainly an important question that we would want to answer. Now in the United States, our fascination with aliens really uh, can be tied to a number of significant events. One of them took place on July 4th, 1947, when a rancher uh, named Mac Brazell found some unidentified debris in a field near Roswell, New Mexico. And this is commonly referred to as the Roswell UFO incident. And in many ways, this moment gave birth to sort of our contemporary obsession with UFOs. So Brazell uh, was out as a uh, sheep rancher in his fields. He saw this debris in the field, inspected it, thought it was a bit strange, identified, uh, sorry, called the local sheriff about it, who then got in touch with Roswell Army Airfield nearby, which then sent officials out to collect the debris, which included, quote, a flying disc and other unidentified pieces. Now, the official Army story is that this was a crash weather balloon, and that remains the official story today. And later, this uh, crash itself was linked to something known as Project Mogul, which was at that time a highly classified U.S. military project that was sending up uh, weather balloons into um, the stratosphere to try to detect radio signatures and other evidence of possible Russian nuclear tests. So remember, this is in the kind of early period of the Cold War. And you can see some images there um, of what are believed to be parts of that crashed object as well as a sign directing uh, interested travelers to the 1947 UFO crash site. Um, very soon after, in early July, the local Roswell Daily Record ran a headline, Our AAF Captures Flying Saucer on Ranch in Roswell Region. And this uh, early moment, as I said, became an important one for the search for extraterrestrial life which is what many scientists that are involved in the search for aliens um, refer to this as, uh, SETI being kind of the common acronym. And SETI itself, or kind of this uh, effort to look for alien life, really began in the 1960s when a group of astronomers, including Frank Drake, Carl Sagan, and others, got together um, in Green Bank, West Virginia in 1961, where the National Radio Astronomy Observatory, NRAO, is located to really try to hash out um, the beginnings of how scientists could study and look for alien life. And in this process, Drake came up with his now famous equation for how we might calculate the possibilities of alien life, known as the Drake equation. And using this concept, the scientists there at Green Bank tried to estimate how many possible alien civilizations could be out there. And they came up with anywhere from 1,000 on the low end to 100 million on the high end within the Milky Way galaxy. And you can see there the um, Drake equation, N equals R star times FP times NE times FL times FI times FC times L. And each of those standing for one part of this equation 
about who and how and where possible alien civilizations could exist and our chances of finding them. And we'll look a little more at that formula here in just a minute. But the question is, if there really is intelligent life in the universe, why haven't we discovered it? Well, scientists have suggested a few possible explanations to answer Fermi's paradox. And these include that aliens exist, but they've chosen to hide their presence from us for perhaps benign or malevolent reasons. It's uh, hard to say. Another possibility is that aliens exist and are actually trying to communicate with us, but we just have different technologies. If you remember, Walsh used the analogy of if we were trying to use a cell phone to contact early Neanderthal uh, humans, it would be quite difficult. A third possibility is that aliens exist, but they're hiding from other dangerous cosmic threats, perhaps other aliens, and therefore have not revealed their presence because it would be dangerous, which is also something we would want to know. A fourth possibility is that maybe aliens exist, but they're in some kind of a hibernation or stasis period, and we just simply haven't encountered them because of that. Sort of an alien winter, if you will. And a fifth possibility is that aliens existed in the past, but have gone extinct sometime in the four and a half, uh, sorry, 14 and a half billion years that the universe has been around. I would add a few more to this list that Walsh outlines that uh, might explain why we haven't discovered aliens. And this could be that um, they exist so far away in the universe that we're just simply, chances of discovering them are infinitesimal. They're there, but we'll probably never bump into each other. A second possibility would be that maybe aliens exist in some kind of a non-corporeal or non-material or even interdimensional form. And because of that, we can't physically observe them, but they are still there. And a third additional possibility might be that Perhaps aliens can somehow manipulate our memory or do something else that allows them to effectively erase our knowledge of any contact. Those of you that are familiar with Doctor Who, the silence would be a great example of how that phenomenon might work. Now, another explanation comes from economist Robin Hansen, and this is dubbed the Great Filter. And the idea here is that maybe the universe has some kind of built-in evolutionary limits that makes it less likely for intelligent life to develop in the universe. So as Walsh suggests, it may be that abiogenesis, which is that process by which raw organic material ingredients evolve from non-living matter to become what we recognize as basic microbial life, simply doesn't happen very often. And the story of Earth could be a serendipitous one, and also one unlikely to repeat itself in the galaxy as vast and as old as the Milky Way. And that seems just as uh, possible. But despite all of this, interest in UFOs has continued to be serious, both amongst the public and the U.S. government, at least since the 1950s. In fact, the U.S. government ran a number of different investigations over the years, including Project Signs in 1947, Project Grudge in 1949, and arguably the most famous of all sort of U.S. government alien projects, Project Blue Book in 1952. Now, Project Blue Book is interesting. If you're an alien buff, you've most likely heard of this. And this was run by the U.S. Air Force with really two primary goals, to assess if there were UFOs and did they pose a potential national security threat, and then more broadly to analyze um, the UFO reports and other related data that were coming in. So during its operation, Project Blue Book examined over 12,000 potential UFO sightings or incidents, 
And that work eventually was compiled by the Condor Commission into the Condor Report, which was published in 1968. You can see a paperback version of that report that was released there. Uh, and this was an effort that was led out of the University of Colorado's UFO project from 1966 to 1968 and overseen by the U.S. Air Force. And essentially what the Condor Report concluded was that no compelling evidence for the existence of alien UFOs could be determined, and thus no uh, real national security threat would be identified. And it was not long after that report was released in 1970 that Project Blue Book was finally shut down. Now, this sort of search for extraterrestrial intelligence um, in the early days often happened sort of inside or on the margins of NASA, but that really came to an end when congressional funding was cut in 1993 and was never really restored again. So as we note and Walsh argues, part of this challenge of SETI was due to what we discussed earlier, which is the giggle factor in relation to asteroid research and the idea that just some things are a little seem too uh, far-fetched even for science. And so without NASA or official government support, SETI really shifted into the realm of private research. And that's really where it continues today in the form of the SETI Institute. And a number of other related efforts, including the Berkeley SETI Research Center, the Mutual UFO Network, or MUFON, and the National UFO Reporting Center, or New Fork. And you can see there the famous Drake equation um, worked into a piece of SETI Institute advertising there. Now, we know the work of SETI has been aided in recent years by lots of advances in space exploration technology, in artificial intelligence, some of those things we talked about in the last week or two. And a few examples that Walsh mentioned included the 2007 Allen Telescope Array, 2009 Kepler Space Telescope, and the more recent 2015 Breakthrough Listen Project, which was a 10-year, $100 million project to advance work of SETI that's based at the Berkeley SETI Research Center. Now, what's interesting is much of SETI and early SETI work was what's known as passive search programs, where effectively scientists were looking for aliens, but not doing anything more active than looking. But some members of SETI, for example, uh, former SETI scientist Douglas Vekoch, argued that we should be doing something a little more active. And this is where we get what's known as messaging extraterrestrial intelligence, or METI. And the question here is really, should we be doing passive or active searching? And that question is really at the heart of um, some important alien and extraterrestrial debates from the 1950s on to today. So if aliens really do exist, should we be trying to contact them? Now, the first attempt uh, sort of informally to reach out to someone else in space was done by the Soviet scientists in 1962, who sent a Morse code message at Venus using the unique Kornberg telescope array and sent a few messages, including uh, Mir and Lenin and acronyms for the Soviet Socialist Republic. But the first truly interplanetary message was sent by a group of scientists uh, led by Frank Drake and including Carl Sagan, who are working on trying to communicate with extraterrestrial intelligence, often referred to as SETI with a C instead of SETI with an S. 
Uh, and this took place on November 16, 1974, at the Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico, when they were kind of rechristening um, some work that had been done to expand its facilities and operations. And what they did is they came up with a message that was directed at Messenger 13 or M13 star cluster, which is approximately 25,000 light years away. Now, interestingly, we're this year here, November 2020, marks the 46th anniversary of that famous uh, message to space. And we refer to this now as the Arecibo message. And essentially what this was, was a message about three minutes long that included 168 seconds of two-tone sound so that someone hearing it would realize that this essentially had been a designed or an engineered sound was not naturally occurring. And it included seven key bits of information about our planet and our solar system, including the numbers one to 10, information about basic atomic elements on Earth, information about DNA, and a graphic representation of our solar system and where we were within that. So potentially an alien civilization somewhere in the M13 star system could receive Drake's Arecibo message around, let's say the year 26,974. And if someone were there to hear it and understand it, we might receive a reply back by the year 51,974, which would give ET phone home a whole different meaning and man, talk about a long-distance phone call. But not everyone was happy that Drake had done this and worried about the possibility of reaching out to aliens. For example, British astronomer Royal Martin Ryle wrote to Drake that it was very hazardous to reveal our existence and location to the galaxy. For all we know, any creatures out there might be malevolent or hungry. And even U.S. astronomer Carl Sagan added that shouting into the cosmos was deeply unwise and immature. And others, Stephen Hawking and, and others, have suggested that maybe trying to reach out to aliens isn't the best plan. And to all of these, Drake responded, it's too late to worry about giving ourselves away. That deed is done and repeated daily with television transmissions, every military radio signal, every spacecraft command. And so for Drake's perspective, we're already essentially bleeding communications out into space, so why not at least be intentional about it? So here's a little look at a bit of this story about uh, these efforts to communicate with extraterrestrial life, including Frank Drake's work with the Arecibo message. In the 1970s, if you wanted to describe life on Earth in a simple way, you probably knew who to ask. Astronomers Frank Drake and Carl Sagan. Both were involved in astrophysics research and education, and Sagan had been consulted on NASA missions like the Venus Probe Mariner 2. But when NASA was finalizing its plans for the Pioneer 10 and 11 missions, the first two spacecraft to pass through the asteroid belt, Sagan proposed a plan, which a journalist had suggested to him, attaching a message to the probes explaining who we are and where we live in case they're ever found by another civilization. And NASA agreed. Over the next few years, the two scientists put together three landmark representations of the human race. The first time that anyone had intentionally created messages to be sent outside the solar system to be read and interpreted by extraterrestrial life. Two were physical messages using NASA probes as couriers. The other one was more of a crafty mathematical code for aliens to crack. But all of them were attempts to describe ourselves to beings who would have no concept of Earth or humans or even just simple units of measurement like 
meters or seconds. We know that the odds of these messages being detected by another civilization are very small. They'd have to find a small probe flying through space or be listening to exactly the right frequency at exactly the right time. But they sent them anyway. Pioneer 10 and Pioneer 11 launched in the early 1970s and each carry a copy of the same plaque meant to explain where they came from. For anything on the plaque to make sense, Drake and Sagan realized they needed to use a universal language, science. So to describe length, the plaque uses units based on the energy change that occurs when an electron and a proton and a hydrogen atom switch the way they spin. Since it has a diagram of the transition, they hoped that any spacefaring civilization would understand what they were talking about. To explain where the Earth is, they included a pulsar map. The map shows the Earth's location among 14 different pulsars, stars that regularly emit bursts of electromagnetic radiation, almost like beacons. The plaque also includes other details, like pictures of humans standing in front of the probe. Which is kind of weird, because now the whole universe knows what we look like with our clothes off. But when it was time to launch the Voyager probes a few years later, Sagan, Drake, and their team were a little more ambitious. Instead of just a plaque, the Voyagers carry with them copies of the Golden Record, like the kind that plays music, forged from gold-plated copper instead of vinyl. The record's cover contains basic information like the hydrogen and pulsar diagrams, plus some illustrations that explain how to play the message on the record. Once the alien recipients figured out how to build a record player, they'd be treated to sounds from all around Earth, including greetings in 55 languages, from extinct Sumerian languages to modern Chinese dialects. That's followed by 90 minutes of different kinds of music throughout the world and throughout history, and a host of natural sounds like birds chirping and whale songs, wind and thunder. Finally, 116 images are encoded on the discs, intended to explain nearly every conceivable aspect of life on Earth. Photos of plants and animals, different landscapes, illustrations of humans in various stages of life, diagrams of our sex organs, and demonstrations of how we drink water and chew food, and lick ice cream cones. That was Sagan and Drake's attempt at creating a kind of encyclopedia of life on Earth. But they also included a third kind of message, and all it really said was, we are intelligent and we're here. For this missive, they didn't use a physical representation. Instead, they tried radio waves. In 1974, Sagan and Drake put together a code to be transmitted by the Arecibo Radio Telescope in Puerto Rico, which was undergoing some upgrades. The data was sent in binary, like in computers, but instead of being ones and zeros, the information was encoded as two different radio frequencies. It took 1,679 radio signals to transmit the message, which was a deliberate number. It's the product of 73 and 23, two prime numbers. And when you organize those signals into a 23 by 73 rectangle, it looks like this. Except that there weren't actually any colors in the actual message, they're just added to the picture for clarity. Those white dots at the top represent the numbers 1 through 10. The purple dots are the atomic numbers of the most important elements for human life. Hydrogen, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, and phosphorus. The green blobs are the formulas for the building blocks of DNA, and those blue strings are meant to be DNA's double helix. Some of the other information in the data are pictures of a human, our solar system, and the Arecibo telescope. For three minutes, the telescope sent the message toward the M13 globular cluster 25,000 light years away. They only picked that cluster on the night of the observatory's reopening ceremony, and that's basically where it happened to be pointed. By the time the message gets there, the cluster won't even be in that spot anymore because it'll have moved on in its galactic orbit. So it's unlikely that we'll ever get a response, even if we wait 50,000 years. Since then, we've broadcasted lots and lots of other messages at likely-looking star systems, though we haven't yet heard back. But I think, at least, we've learned a little bit more about ourselves in the process. So, as we heard there, this 1974 Arecibo message was essentially the most um, creative effort at that time to try to reach out to intelligent life. And you can see there the binary ones and zeros that he was mentioning, and the idea being by using that 73 by 23 um, 
mathematical formula abstracted out of the 1,679 digits, you get this graphical representation which has all that encoded information that we just heard about there. So Walsh argues there's something of the move fast and break stuff ethos of Silicon Valley in the Medi movement, a willingness to disregard risk if risk gets in the way of potential reward. If an act carries even a minuscule risk of human extinction, shouldn't we err on the side of safety given the ultimate stakes at play? And if that's the case, perhaps we should pause before sending an unknown alien civilization of unknown technological capacity and unknown intentions Google map directions to our home planet. So alien contact is yet another one of these existential risks that could bring about the end of the world. But despite verified scientific proof of the existence of aliens, popular and official interest remains high. So in 2017, media reported on the existence of a formerly unknown DOD, Department of Defense project, it was a roughly $22 million project known as the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Project, or AATIP, which operated very much like the earlier Project Blue Book from the 1950s, focusing on UFOs, or as they now refer to them in government speak, Unexplained Aerial Phenomenon, UAPs. So the Defense Intelligence Agency, or DIA, ran the AATIP program from 2007 to 2012, that was thanks in part to um, efforts of support from then Nevada Senator Harry Reid, whose home state includes the famous Area 51, arguably one of the most famous alien conspiracy sites on the planet. Now, even though AATIP uh, no longer exists, its work continues today under the new program known as the Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon Task Force, UAPTF. Sorry, UAPTF run by the Department of Defense. And we just found out about um, this new sort of task force this summer, thanks to some hearings that took place in June of 2020 by the US Senate Select Intelligence Committee. And this was called in part by uh, the recent release in the last uh, two or three years of some declassified government videos depicting UF UFO encounters uh, by Air Force and other US military. So we think about UFOs and UFO contacts, and we look a little bit over the last, let's say, 30 years, um, what do we see? Well, the high point of sort of alien encounters came somewhere around 2014, 2015, with almost 9,000 reported sightings. But that's been dropping over the past few years, although we did see an uptick uh, last year between 2018 and 2019. It's down a bit this year so far um, as of the summer of 2020, but it's hard to say for sure if that trend will continue to grow or continue to drop down. So certainly much higher than it was in the 1990s, but not quite as high as it was a few years ago. And as you can see on this map, which is showing some of the hot spots of UFO sightings. Um, the bigger the, the green circle there, the more witnesses reporting that. And you see the Pacific Northwest, uh, Washington remains sort of the UFO hotspot um, in the United States, but some important places in the Southwest, obviously in the Nevada, New Mexico, Texas border areas, as well as around um, some of the Great Lakes and Chicago, and a number down on the East Coast and the sort of upper East Coast from New York going up into Boston area. 
I was curious about Chico. Uh, what is the alien UFO sort of dynamics going on there? So I went to the UFO stalker website and took a look there. And as you can see, uh, there have been quite a few reported sightings around Chico itself, from saucers to um, strange triangular ship-like objects to even potential UFO aliens themselves. If you're interested in that, you can check this out and look at your local area through the UFO stalker. So how have these uh, phenomenon and public interest and government uh, curiosity all kind of come together in the past year or two? Let's take a look at that story. Is something really out there? Three more U.S. senators received a classified briefing about UFOs at the Pentagon, or in current lingo, unidentified aerial phenomena. You may have heard that pilots and other military personnel have been reporting these, these kinds of sightings for years. A couple weeks ago, the Department of Defense even released footage shot by a Navy Super Hornet pilot. But you may not have known that back in 2007, Congress directed the Pentagon to set up a $22 million search for the truth. And Tom Foreman is with me more on the uh, Advanced Aviation Threat Identification Program. Um, so, Tom, talk to me about the, the senators getting the classified briefings on uh, UFOs. Yeah, well, here's the interesting thing. It's easy to laugh at this, easy to think it's silly or it's just a bunch of, uh, of uh, hokum out there. But... Senator Mark Warner, who is the vice chair of the Intelligence Committee, said, look, I think it's important. He told us just this afternoon, I think it's important that the military is taking this more seriously now than they did in the past. So what are they taking seriously? Those videos you were talking about relate to a couple of different sightings we're talking about. In 2004, there was one called the Tic Tac sighting. They called it that because they said it looked like a Tic Tac flying out there very close to the water on the West Coast. And then more recently, there were some out on the East Coast that people were talking about, 2014, 2015, where these pilots were describing seeing these things up to 30,000 feet in the air, flying at extraordinary speeds, hypersonic, well over the speed of sound, changing direction in the most uh, astonishing ways, and seemingly defying the laws of physics. Listen to what one of these pilots had to say. No distinct wings, no distinct tail, no distinct exhaust. It seemed like they were aware of our presence because they would actively move around us. So that's what has everyone excited here. These reports, the release of these videos, and you mentioned the program. That was originally started by Senator Harry Reid because they said, look, we just need to know what's going on. It only lasted about five years. It's been shut down for a number of years. And they said they really didn't find anything. But Brooke, you know, the obvious question here is, is there something out there? Not necessarily extraterrestrial, but is there something else? Some sure. kind of a drone, some sure. kind of secret uh, technology, something that maybe we control, maybe we don't. So, yeah, um, maybe they'll get to the, to the bottom of that. I know that in April, the Navy actually issued guidelines for pilots to report any sightings of uh, the unidentified aerial phenomena. Are you surprised this kind of information is now getting out to the, to the public? Well, I, I think it's been a long time in coming, Brooke. I mean, this is the sort of thing back early in my reporting career, some 30, 40 years ago, you would hear about. But at the time, it was just sort of released as ah, a bunch of crazy conspiracy theorists with a bunch of ideas out there and mm -hmm. people taking pictures of uh, an odd-shaped cloud in the sky. I'm not really surprised that we're finally getting to the point of looking at this more carefully, and particularly, Brooke, when you think about the technology we're dealing with today. We're dealing with technology that we really haven't seen before, Remember, when the first stealth fighters came out, there had been pictures 
of these things taken from very far by civilians saying there's some kind of strange aircraft out here that we've mm -hmm. never seen before. Eventually, we found out what it was, but initially mm -hmm. it was just a mystery. So I think for a lot of people who aren't looking for space aliens, this is still very interesting because they're saying, is sure. it something, even if it's not space aliens, is it something that will make a difference in the future? And again, is it something that the U.S. is controlling, or is this some new technology that somebody else has developed? What, 30 seconds, Tom, what, what has President Trump said about this? Uh, you've got to listen to what President Trump said about it. It's really interesting. ABC asked him about it. Listen to his comment. Well, I think my great, our great pilots would know. Uh, and some of them really see things that are a little bit different than in the past. So we're going to see. But we'll watch it. You'll be the first to know. So the top levels of government, they're talking about it, Brooke. No answers yet, but a lot of questions. So if you remember back to the middle um, of our class discussions when we were looking at the Chapman University Survey of American Fears, uh, we looked at this issue of conspiracies and aliens. And what we saw is that um, there is a strong amount of belief in aliens in the United States. So particularly um, around alien encounters, 42, almost 43% of Americans believe that the government is concealing what they know about alien encounters, particularly alien abductions. We know that almost 25% of Americans believe that aliens have come to visit the Earth in modern times, and about 27% believe that aliens visited Earth in the ancient past as well. So a significant um, percentage of the U.S. population has these real interests and beliefs in possibility of alien encounters. Um, just this past year, another YouGov poll asking people about whether or not they felt the U.S. government was hiding something about UFOs. We find that 54% thought it was very or somewhat likely that our government knows something about UFOs but is not telling us. That number was highest among Democrats at 62%, lowest among independents at 50%. But interestingly, um, those uh, overall, you have pretty strong support for, yes, the federal government is hiding something, and that's you know 50% or greater across the board, regardless of um, political orientation. And interestingly, those who think it's only very or somewhat likely are actually not that far apart. 27% total average of those respondents, 23% of Democrats, 34% of Republicans, and 32% of independents. So even uh, just as of a year ago, still a lot of belief in possibility of more going on than we're being told about aliens. A great example of this we saw just this past year um, with the announcement of a sort of Area 51 invasion which took over social media. That new emergency order issued for Area 51. Yes, that spot near Las Vegas, famous for extraterrestrial conspiracy theories. Now millions say they're gonna visit after a post went viral on Facebook and officials are on alert. Well, Reed, <laughs> what say you? <laughs> I, I say that a whole bunch of people are signed up on Facebook to Storm Area 51, and the organizer of the group said he was joking, and he's changed the concept for next month's big event that's on September 20th. But local officials are not taking any chances. Nevada officials are bracing for an invasion at Area 51 by humans. The military base 80 miles from Las Vegas has become infamous for conspiracy theories about little green men. They certainly appear to still be covering up 
what exactly goes on at Area 51. If you and I walked in on everything that was being done, I'm sure we, we would be flabbergasted. Home to an alien prisoner in Independence Day and countless encounters with the X-Files Agent Mulder. It's all our questions, the proof that we've suspected but never been able to hold in our hands. That. That proof is here. Now the extraterrestrial hub is front and center thanks to a Facebook group dubbed Storm Area 51. They can't stop us all. Attracting more than 2 million fans, the movement quickly went from a joke to no laughing matter. The FBI agents that showed up, they showed up at 10 a.m. because I was kind of scared at this point, but they were they were super cool. They really just wanted to make sure I wasn't like some kind of actual terrorist that's making pipe bombs. The Air Force, which denies any alien visitors or ships, issued a stern warning saying, quote, any attempt to illegally access military installations or military training areas is dangerous and promised to, quote, defend America and its assets. Creator Matty Roberts stood down. It's insane. I just created a joke while I was playing video games, man, and it's taken off to this, like, absolutely wild monster. Now his wild monster has morphed into a vision for a different invasion. Up to 50,000 festival goers descending on the otherworldly tourism hotspot of Rachel, Nevada. But behind those barbed wire fences, officials are tracking something. The military reporting a spike in reports of unidentified flying objects of the very real variety. Fighter pilots sharing their stories of close encounters in the skies. And officials are paying attention. According to the Washington Post, the Defense Department is spending $22 million on a government program looking into UFOs. That creator, Matty Roberts, has a disclaimer up on the Storm Area 51 page saying, Hello, U.S. government, this is a joke. <laughs> saying he just wanted some likes on the Internet. Nobody's going to storm the base. But that festival alien stock that they changed it to sounds like a lot of fun. Mm. Yeah, you should go and tell us all you about it. I will. How about that? <laughs> Next month, I'll go hang out and do, do live. Sounds good. Well. Now. <laughs> exactly. It's, they're selling out. Thousands of people going. So, as you can see, still obviously a lot of interest in these alien phenomena. In fact, even just literally a week or two ago in November, um, we had this appearance of the alien monolith in the desert in Utah, kind of coming out of nowhere, catching people by surprise. Lots of speculation about whether or not this was uh, some kind of an alien created in an installed object. So much so that the Bureau of Land Management in Utah had to issue a um, statement saying that they would like to remind the public that land visitors who are using, occupying, or developing public lands or the resources without a required authorization is illegal no matter what planet you are from. Now, interestingly, from the time I was putting this lecture together and these announcements came out on the November 24th to now the end of November, the monolith has once again disappeared. So the mystery deepens. Uh, we know it probably was an alien because of the signs of rivet marks and other things, um, but where did it come from and where did it go remains a mystery still today. So if alien civilizations do exist, it's likely that they have technology more advanced than ours, and that may provide one additional clue to the Fermi paradox, at least according to astrophysicist Adam Frank, who's done work on this. So Frank has proposed uh, four climate change scenarios due to long-term use of energy-intensive developments by alien civilizations, essentially arguing that um, alien civilizations that were developing technologies similar to ours or even more advanced 
probably had some of the same climate change um, challenges that they would have to address. And he came up with four possible scenarios about how alien civilizations might have handled this. And the first one, essentially, you have alien civilization die off due to a combination of climate change and extreme population crashes, leaving a small enough remnant of aliens behind that they were never able to sufficiently develop the technology for long distance communication. A second possible scenario is that alien civilizations collapse due to overconsumption of energy resources, leading to some kind of extreme climate change. A uh, third scenario was that alien civilizations collapse due to runaway climate change. Maybe they tried to make sustainable changes to their energy use, but it just came too little too late. And then finally, the last sort of possibly hopeful scenario there is that alien civilizations were able to make sustainable changes to their use and development of energy technologies that allowed them to stabilize the climate and survive. So in those four scenarios, Frank envisioned only one of those led to the continued existence of alien civilizations. But as Walsh argues, it doesn't have to be climate change, however, almost any of the existential threats that we've examined in this book could be the culprit. Nuclear chain reaction isn't something that only works on Earth. A very uh, version powers our own sun and all stars. So if there were past alien civilizations that went extinct from climate change or something else, uh, many scientists think that there may have been some traces left behind. And they refer to these as necrosignatures, and that perhaps we might be able to detect some sign of these former civilizations, such as maybe signs of massive nuclear fallout or some kind of chemical traces in the atmosphere due to a depleted ozone layer. So as the common SETI maxim goes, the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. And this really gets again to the heart of this Fermi paradox. If there is intelligent life somewhere in the universe, why haven't we found it yet? The fact that we haven't found it doesn't prove that it doesn't exist, but the fact that we haven't disproved it also doesn't prove that they do exist. So it's this paradox. So whether or not the end of the world occurs at the hands of extraterrestrial intelligence ultimately depends on whether or not they really exist. And that is a question that we'll have to wait for another day. Well, that wraps up our show for this week. Join me next week again as we begin our recap journey through our various end-of-the-world scenarios. Think about what we've learned concerning how the world might end. Intro song this week is The Cover-Up by Platinum Butterfly. And the closing music is Aliens Disco Mix by Magma Vander. You can find a link to both songs and other videos that are discussed in this week's show in the show notes below. As always, thanks for joining me for another episode of The End of the World, and I'll see you all again soon. Bye.